Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies. I'm Dan Levesey, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Lyman Johnson about his recent book, Workshop of Revolution, will be in Buenos Aires and the Atlantic World. Lyman Johnson, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Dan. Uh, I wonder if we can just start off, if you could give us a little bit of a sense of your biography, um, uh, sort of your your history with Latin American studies, and then also kind of what got you into this project, what were some of your long-term interests, and maybe uh, what spurred the original creation of this project? Well, so uh, when I was a college senior, I thought I was going to go to law school, and uh, it wasn't until I was admitted that I... I uh, made the practical step of sitting through some law school classes and realized I didn't want to be a lawyer, or at least I didn't want to go to law school. So at the very last minute, I, uh, uh, my advisor at Tufts University uh, near Boston uh, went to work to try and find an unfilled fellowship someplace in New England where I could begin a history career. Uh, eventually, I end up, ended up at the University of Connecticut and studied mostly with Hugh Hamill, who's a Independence-era Mexican historian and uh, a wonderful mentor during my time there. Um, So uh, I also started off to be a Cuban historian, like many of the people in my generation. But I decided there that at that time, the United States and Cuba had such tense relations that um, if you wanted to do research in Cuba, you had to apply through the Czechoslovakian embassy in Washington. And I just thought that I didn't want my research topics hostage to some bureaucratic process. Um, So I was taking uh, some economic history courses with a visiting Argentine historian, Roberto Cortes Conde. And um, so I hustled at the last minute because the uh, fellowship deadlines were approaching to come up with a topic and settled as a topic on the artisans of Buenos Aires. And the model I chose was basically typical of my era, um, which relied on the enormous success of Jim Lockhart, James Lockhart's book called Spanish Peru. And what he demonstrated was, is that if you immersed yourself in the uh, notary archives of colonial Spanish America, you could illuminate social history in 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 very rich and complex ways. So I went off to Buenos Aires to do this with some uh, funding and um, took the project up and uh, finished the dissertation on the artisans of Buenos Aires. But for various reasons, uh, professional and personal, I wasn't satisfied with the model. Um, I had come to conclude that um, these archives and the questions that were being asked by those of us who were social historians of that era, it just wasn't satisfying to me. So I, I put the whole thing aside and turned my attention to other kinds of, of projects over the years. Um, but at the same time, I sort of pushed ahead with learning some new methodologies 
uh, some quantitative history techniques, uh, immersing myself in European and uh, U.S., early U.S. economic history. And um, after about 15 years, I was ready to go back and pick up the artisans again and look at it in new ways. Um, so the, the result of this long, cumbersome process was I came to believe that to understand the lives of um, the pre-industrial working class, you had to flesh out the economic circumstances with, with which they lived. Um, you'll see in modern, the new cultural history and in the older social history of uh, my younger uh, era, you see lots of speculation about poverty and about uh, class identity and uh, the circumstances in which class identity morphs into political action. But the truth is, is that all of that is highly speculative. Um, you you can't even come up with five substantial efforts to um, uh, discuss or to illuminate um, wage structures in colonial Spanish America. I mean, there, there's I mean, there's almost nothing. So, you know, in this book, what I set out to do, the large ambition was to demonstrate that social history and economic history are mutually reinforcing and that if the time is taken to attach social history to a, uh, a thorough and, and sensible interrogation of the economic facts, you end up with a better understanding of the lives of those, um, those uh, working men and women. So that's, that's the large underlying ambition. And then there was one final ambition that informed this project, which is... Um, I can remember all the way back to my early, my first research experiences in Buenos Aires in the 1970s, and I remember uh, going out for a coffee with some of these grand old men of Argentine history of that era, and um, one of them asked me what I was doing, and I told him, and he smiled at me, this sort of benevolent smile you give to someone who just doesn't have any idea what they're doing. And he said to me, oh, yes, independence in Argentina was the first military coup, mm -hmm. right? Basically dismissing the whole idea that the urban masses, the, the plebeian um, population of Buenos Aires at the time of independence could have had any kind of influence on the outcomes. So that never made sense to me. It's probably because someone of my age, you know, was immersed in Hobbesbaum and Roudet as a graduate student. But I just, I sensed that there was a story there and that the, because of this sort of dismissive attitude towards independence within the existing historiography, it was the first coup d'etat or golpe, that what had happened is, is that most Argentine historians of my generation had simply not been interested in, in, in independence. It wasn't a complex story. It was a beginning, but it was a beginning that was almost disconnected from the past. It was simply explained. And so you had some of these traditional studies that were basically the biographies of this handful of influential um, men of the uh, independence era but there was no real effort to open the door and thoroughly re-examine the run-up to independence. 
So those are the two large ambitions that inform this book. Um, you and other readers are, are best situated to judge whether or not I've made any progress in in uh, in in. In, in reframing the historiography or in indicating a different sort of history for the early period. But that's what I set out to do. Uh, the, the problem with a large ambitious project like that is, is that if you don't exercise some discipline, it runs away with you. And next thing you know, you're looking at 180,000 words or something catastrophic like that. <laughs> and you have to back the whole project up. So, you know, the, Fitting those stories within a sensible page limit was also a, a problem for me. But, you know, in the end, good editors help you get there. Yeah. yeah. Well, and as not a I'm not an expert in Argentinian uh, historiography, so it worked very well for me. Um, you can oh, thanks. Um, uh, before we get into the artisans themselves, I wonder uh, if you could talk a little bit about just the city itself, because I think you do a really great job of actually getting the reader to understand not just the looks, right. but also like the sounds and smells of the city of Buenos Aires, which you sort of construct as, as not necessarily uh, the pinnacle of, of urbanity in the Spanish That's Empire this time all. period. So I wonder if you could say a little bit about it. And also uh, maybe to kind of attach on to that question is, is what is Buenos Aires's role in this kind of Atlantic economy at the end of the 18th century? Because one of the things that you mentioned is that uh, the Rio de la Plata is in some ways kind of not very easily navigable and it's hard to get into that port and you have these great illustrations of these large carts that are forced to carry people yeah. into the city or they have to go on this very long uh, 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 land route to get into Buenos Aires and so uh, can you kind of talk about its place within this larger Atlantic economy? Right. I, I, well it's, it seems to me that um, you have to look at it as a colonial region in which Buenos Aires is the preeminent uh, city. Um, and the fact that it's the pre predominant city has to do in some measure with the fact that the other side of the estuary, what is now Uruguay, was still being contested right up until the 1770s. So the, the Spanish evict the Portuguese from Colonia in 1778. And even after that, there's a significant ongoing Portuguese commercial presence in Montevideo. So Montevideo is the natural port of the Rio de la Plata region, but because of the contested nature of, um, of the Banda Oriental, or east bank of the estuary, um, Buenos Aires, the more secure point, port, and also the first political capital, sort of built up this demographic and economic momentum that allowed it, despite the fact that it had all sorts of obstacles to commercial dominance, allowed it to situate itself in this sort of preeminent position vis-a-vis -vis its rival across the estuary, Montevideo. So Buenos Aires is an odd place. It's a, it's a central commercial district that's dependent on a on a port that's 160 miles away. Um, it faces all sorts of commercial obstacles because until 1778, it's excluded from most direct trade within the empire or with Spain itself other than periodic mail ships. So the city grows up as um, a, a center of contraband. And so it's a it, it, using the language of a different field, it's a it's a frontier 
between Spain and Portugal is the frontier between Spanish America and the more complex northern European dominated commerce of the emerging Atlantic in the 18th century. So Buenos Aires has a culture in which um, sort of avoiding the consequences of illegal commercial activity and ad hocing political and commercial relationships uh, in advance of, of policy formulation uh, is central to the city's emergence as an important place. And you can track the growth of the city through its population growth. So it goes through this remarkable ascent from being in, say, 1750, a small city of probably 40,000, more or less, to a city uh, by 1810 of probably 70 to 80,000. So uh, at the beginning of the period, it's like most secondary cities in the Spanish South American empire. Um, by the end of the Spanish rule in Buenos Aires in 1810, Buenos Aires is the size of Lima, the ancient, most important city in Spanish South America. So the city's ascent is dramatic and sets up what happens after independence, right? So, I mean, for most historians of Latin America, Buenos Aires and Argentina, or the Rio de la Plata more generally, become interesting after independence. So there's a ton of historiography on the period after Rosas, after 1850, all of this concentration on the era of immigration in the 1880s and 1890s, the great commercial liftoff of Buenos Aires um, and economic liftoff of Buenos Aires in the last two decades of the 19th century. But I think what I would argue is we as historians have missed the fact that all of that big story after 1880 is in some ways... um, uh, imitative of what had happened a hundred years earlier. So Buenos Aires at the end of the 18th century is a city transformed by immigration, transformed by rapid economic growth. It has all, almost all of the elements of the big story at the end of the 19th century, a present in the 18th century. And because we haven't paid enough attention to that, we, we don't see a society undergoing dramatic enough changes to explain independence as we explain large political events most other places. And that's why this dismissive one-sentence idea, Buenos Aires or Argentina gains its independence in in the first military coup, has some traction. But once the full story is revealed in the 18th century, you can see the way in which economic and demographic forces sort of set up, along with Spanish policy changes, set up the big changes that come after 1810. Yeah, and and your book really tries to chart those economic changes through what happens to the artisans in that sort of narrow period of the 1770s to 1810. And so uh, could you talk a little bit about that? I mean, part of what you're looking at is the the rise or the attempted rise of a guild system uh, in Buenos Aires. and sort of just sort of talk about what that that method was for and what their, that push was for and what kind of changes that it produced for the actual working people of Buenos Aires. Sure. I mean, so for me, using, again, this the broad parallels between the 1880s and 90s and the 1780s and 90s, everybody understands that this period of rapid growth in the 19th century is the result of 
um, resources that were in um, f far greater availability than population and therefore labor. That is the thing that transforms Argentina, the thing that makes Argentina the place that it is even today, still the richest country in terms of income in Latin America, it, average income, that that that's created by a superabundance of resources and a scarcity of population. And that's what moves these this mass of humanity across the Atlantic in the 19th century. But that's been there all along. So 18th century Argentina is a place in which labor is scarce and resources are abundant. And what this does is it creates a, a very non-traditional uh, labor environment in the city of Buenos Aires. So my argument is, is that unlike, say, the Andes at the same time, or Mexico, or even the Caribbean, in Buenos Aires in the 18th century, you have um, high wages and, and consistent labor demand that gives a lot of employment opportunities. So if you were to compare Alto Peru to Buenos Aires, in Alto Peru, the, the, to, the two reales a day wage exists for probably 200 years or more. Whereas in Buenos Aires, it's absolutely clear that wages are going up in unheard of ways um, in the late 18th, late 18th century Spanish world. So I would say that uh, very similar to British North America in the era of independence, uh, Buenos Aires and its immediate environs are high wage areas that attract immigrants while at the same time, the same underlying forces make the slave trade very profitable and, ex and, and, and explain uh, the rapid rise in slave imports as well. So Buenos Aires has become both a major source of European immigration and an important destination of the African slave trade by 1800. So within, within this complex, um, you have uh, a situation in which there's a great deal of volatility and fluidity within the urban working class. Um, and all of that congeals around the effort in the 18 and the 1780s and 90s to create guilds. So guilds in the Spanish colonial world are more or less uh, an artifact of urban culture almost. So um, elite Spaniards presume that the presence of guilds are a good thing in most cities and Spanish administrators encourage the formation of guilds going all the way back to the 16th century. But the effort in Buenos Aires happens very late. And in the end, as I point out in the book, uh, all the efforts to create formal guilds uh, fail in Buenos Aires. And they fail for both internal and external reasons. The internal reasons are that for Spanish immigrant artisans, the creation of guilds provided a mechanism whereby they could discriminate against non-white, native-born or freed slaves who were in the artisan crafts. So the non-white portions of the artisan uh, community resist and effectively resist this effort at formal 
discrimination. But by the time that's resolved, the internal conflict is resolved, significant elements within the Buenos Aires, Buenos Aires elite, political elite, governing elite, have embraced the evolving ideology, um, this presence in European efforts to reform or abolish guilds, um, you know, uh, all of in even before the French Revolution, their efforts to abolish guilds, they're seen as restraints on trade and too conservative and obstacles to technological innovation. So by the, by the time the guilds are blow up from as a result of internal conflict in Buenos Aires, you already had a growing accommodation within the governing elite, dismissing the whole idea as some sort of, you know, artifact of, of some earlier time that no longer have any real use to the uh, local economy. So the result is you have an urban um, working class in Buenos Aires that has access to unusually high wages if compared with other major cities in the Spanish Empire. But these high wages are paid in an environment where you have rapidly rising costs for essential goods. So people have money but find great difficulties in, um, in improving their material circumstances. And one of the key roadblocks was the cost of housing. So you have artisans who are forced to then or compelled by circumstances to think through what it is they're going to do with the incomes that they make. And one of the things they do is they purchase leisure in effect. Right. So if if I can't rent an apartment on my own, even though I'm making high wages, one of the things I could do is I could take days off. I can hang out in pulperias and drink aguardiente and um, gamble or play bowls with my friends or all of the other things that 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 made Buenos Aires working class appear so dissolute, so dis disruptive and potentially violent to the elite. So it's a, it's a very interesting working class, and the uniqueness of, the, of this ex particular example of a colonial working class is framed by those unique features of the col late colonial economy. All right. Had a little bit of a uh, recording hiccup there, uh, but Lyman, if you wouldn't mind, uh, we were talking about uh, sort of how slavery impacted Buenos Aires, and then we got cut off uh, with our internet connections. But I wonder if you could just, again, go back through and maybe chart what the rise of African enslavement in Buenos Aires did, uh, not only for the artisan class, but also maybe for just the general culture. Um, and, and one of the things, too, is that, that uh, there's a really interesting component of slavery in terms of it being an urban type of slavery where uh, sort of people you wouldn't expect own slaves in this city. So if you could talk a little bit about that, that'd be great. Okay. Uh, well, th there's no doubt that... Um, by 1800 and in the years in the decade that follows, last decade of Spanish rule, um, slaves held a, uh, an important place at the very center of, of, of urban life. Um, every visitor to the city, the local Spanish colonial bureaucrats, virtually every commentator who visits the city talks about this presence. Um, so what was the slavery of Buenos Aires? So every place in the Spanish Empire where slavery is important, we know there are urban slaves. 
right? They're household servants, some art, artisans, uh, street vendors. Uh, we see it in the contemporary um, um, drawings and illustrations produced by visitors to Brazil, visitors to Havana, and other places in the Spanish and Portuguese Empire. So Buenos Aires was certainly just like that. Um, but my argument would be that the thing that makes Buenos Aires uh, unusual is the heavy presence of slaves um, as wage earners in the urban economy. So their place in the economy was extremely um, complex and their presence was found in almost almost all urban occupations um, at the level of manual labor. So what you have is a city in which uh, free labor is inadequate to fulfill local labor demands. Slaves are being imported in large numbers and as the numbers go up, slave prices decline. Um, and so what happens is that slaves are distributed um, as individuals or as small groups, individual families or a handful of families among a broad class of owners in Buenos Aires. So you, um, for example, when the shoemakers are attempting to create a guild, um, one of the racial provisions of their proposed guild constitution was to deny slaves the right to become uh, masters within the craft of shoemaking. And this is all the way back in 1780. And the local cabildo um, denies the, the, this provision of the constitution because as the as the um, as the regidor in charge of supervising the drafting of the Constitution points out, because all over Buenos Aires, um, widows and elderly people depended on the earnings of their slaves. So slaves were like a social insurance scheme in the city of Buenos Aires, where near destitute Spaniards or Creole families who attempted to maintain their some element of their presumed social status would purchase a single slave or a couple of slaves, turn these slaves into wage laborers, sometimes not even providing um, shelter and food for them on a, on a regular basis, basically shooing them out the door to earn wages and then return periodically with a stipulated amount of money. And this process of employing slaves in a, a, just a a broad range of lesser skilled employments also served as a as an opening of uh, for slaves in the artisan crafts. So in a world where apprentices could be costly in the first years of their training and where apprentices potentially could become rivals and competitors when they became journeymen and masters masters who purchase slaves and then train them in the rudiment, uh, rudimentary skills of the profession created something that was artisan-like, right? So the, the skill set of producing shoes or producing silver or producing textiles, all of the skill sets remained basically the same. And there was very little 
technological innovation in any of these trades, not only in Buenos Aires, but in across the, the Spanish world in the 18th century. But the innovation was happening within the employment system. So you end up with masters who traditionally had, if you will, skimmed the value added provided by apprentices and journeymen in terms of their own incomes, using slaves as a more efficient mechanism of multiplying output, right? But controlling the cost to the master, right? And it also worked as an, in, in other ways. So the master reaching retirement could sell his skilled slaves, Right. Or have the skilled slaves maintain the shop as he sort of spent less time actually manufacturing goods and more more time, you know, either with his family or worrying about his health or all the other things that the elderly do. So slavery itself provides a second gasp for the artisan professions of Buenos Aires. They failed to produce guilds. All of the European social system that surrounded artisan crafts could never be established in Buenos Aires. But this growing abundance of fairly inexpensive slave labor in Buenos Aires at the end gave many artisan masters an opportunity to multiply productive potential, but also provided certain other rudimentary economic and social benefits. So, so slavery becomes integrated in all of the slaves become integrated in all of the artisan crafts, and some of them are heavily dependent on, particularly the outdoor crafts, carpentry, um, the masonry, uh, even shipbuilding and the estuary, all become heavily dependent on slaves as a result. So what you have is something that looks like the traditional artisan system of the early modern world but with closer inspection becomes something very different. It's a a colonial artisan world, Mm -hmm. right? And if colonialism has any kind of narrow meaning in Buenos Aires, it's this potential for appropriation that's inherently a part of the colonial world. And and it has a lot of other components to other parts of the Atlantic world in terms of what that does to that society. And you have this interesting chapter about fears about slave revolution, which, which occur in 1795, which, you know, there's so many failed conspiracies or attempted slave revolutions. You talk about San Domingue, but there's the Maroon Rebellion in Jamaica, Venezuela, Curacao, Grenada, uh, Louisiana. They all have these kind of failed revolutions in the same year. Yeah. I mean, the Spaniards actually elect, uh, I mean, they arrest a couple of, uh, of uh, French artisans in the plaza in in Mexico City who they hear saying favorable things about the French Revolution. So you have these things happening all over the Spanish world and indeed in Brazil as well. Um, Yeah, so in Buenos Aires you have um, what I think is best called a purported uh, conspiracy to raise a slave rebellion. Um, Certainly there are individuals who are sympathetic to the French Revolution and there's some wonderful testimony that's produced. You know, one um, French merchant um, in a barbershop in Buenos Aires says something like, Robespierre could be king of the world. 
<laughs> and um, so this purported conspiracy was supposed to take place on Good Friday. Um, and uh, one slave who was interrogated said um, uh, to the uh, investigating alcalde, he said, on Good Friday, we'll all be French. <laughs> you know, so built into that wonderful statement is a sense of the mysterious power of revolution as an idea. Right. I mean, it, it wasn't that this slave misunderstood either this purported conspiracy or mis somehow misunderstood what the conspiracy's likely project would be but rather that he understood how terrifying the idea of revolution, how terrifying the events in Saint-Domingue had was for the elite of Buenos Aires, the slave owners and the colonial administrators. So this thing basically leads to more than 32 arrests and uh, on both sides of the estuary in Montevideo as well. And um, uh, two individuals are tortured. Um, as far as I know, it's the last examples of judicial torture in uh, in the, the Viceroyalty of Rio de la Plata. They occur in 1795. Um, and the city is clearly stirred up by it. One of the things that it led to, in other words, for this um, panic to occur, I mean, there has to be more than the fact that French armies have invaded northern Spain as a part of the war between Spain, revolutionary France and Spain. And it has to be more than occasionally a ship's crew arriving in Buenos Aires talks about events in Saint-Domingue or in the Caribbean. Um, one of the things that had been going on is as these efforts to create guilds had fallen apart, there had been more and more sort of physical confrontations between blacks and whites. The black shoemakers actually you know, forced the, the city's alcalde of the first vote to call for a military patrol because he couldn't even maintain order in his own home uh, in the face of the anger of the black shoemakers. So you have a situation where the context of all of this, this sense of growing criminality, the rising numbers of, uh, of uh, Africans imported by the slave trade, and then just the circumstances in which a small number of people are overheard. <coughs> Forgive me. Uh, talking about um, uh, rumors of a conspiracy. So the result is this huge event with all sorts of distorting effects on local politics. Um, and it has a long tail, too, because some of those involved in this are later very prominent figures at the time of independence and just before. So um, there's this sense that the urban uh, pleb is stirred up, unsettled, potentially dangerous. Um, and part of the logic of those, of, of, of those opinions is derived from distant events in France and in Saint-Domingue, and then local events like the failure of the guilds and the growing sort of physical nature of the disputes within the guilds.
And, and that seems to become pretty important in the next decade with the kind of militarization that you talk about in the city, which eventually becomes important when the British arrive in 1807. Right. And so that seems to fit into your chronology around the importance of this period in terms of eventual independence. So, uh, you know, not to spoil the book for, for people, but could you say a little bit more about the importance of that militarization and what it ultimately does towards maybe the seedbed for revolution and independence? Right. Well, I mean, just to try and make my earlier point about the usefulness sometimes of um, of um, illuminating the economic context for events. So one of the things I did is I looked at wages and prices. I estimated real wages over this 35, 40-year period. And what you have is a growing crisis after 1800. So... Wages continue to grow up, go go up, but prices overtake wages. And so by 1802, you have a situation where even though the wages of all classes of manual laborers, the skilled artisans and the lesser skilled day laborers, that those wages are, are increasingly unable to sustain the material life that these classes expect, the way in which they interpret um, their well-being. Um, and this happens on the eve of the first of the British invasions in 1806, right? So all sorts of things are happening in terms of, of sort of setting the working class on edge, disturbing the what's left of the established relationships within and among um, artisan groups. And then you have the British invasion, and what happens with that is you have the very bad behavior of the local Spanish viceroy who basically packs up the treasury and flees. Now, I mean, if, if forced to, I'm, I'm willing to defend poor the Marquis de, de Sobramante, but um, the response is that the early British invasion by a very small military force succeeds in taking Buenos Aires. And then in a short time, a popular rebellion led by a mix of Spanish military officers, local merchants, and just filled the ranks filled with the spontaneous patriotism of all sorts of people, including artisans and day laborers, succeeds in defeating the British occupation force and reestablishing Spanish rule. Within less than a year, a much larger British invasion shows up. And once again, this mix of popular forces and elements within the traditional governing elite succeed in defeating a second British force. Right. And these were not incompetent British military expeditions. The general who led the first invasion is after Wellington, the second most important British military hero of the Iberian campaigns against Napoleon. I mean, so these these were substantial professional British military forces defeated by popular, spontaneously organized forces in the city of Buenos Aires. But between the first and second invasion, you have efforts to professionalize this popular, spontaneous military force. And the result is that you have an unplanned but very consequential drift 
from a world in which the artisan guilds and artisan organization is in deep crisis for 20 years and is disappearing in Buenos Aires. And the appearance of popular militia units, many of which elected their own officers. So my argument is, is narrowly within this window from 1806 to 1811, and you can ask me later why 1811, um, because in this narrow window, um, my argument is, is plebeian Buenos Aires invests itself in a new set of institutions, and this investment in these new set of institutions, military institutions, creates, popularly creates the circumstances in which the events in May 1810, which is the first stage of independence in the Rio de la Plata, can happen. So my feeling is this is hugely important, but without the backstory, that is why these military organizations were embraced so enthusiastically, why they prospered in the politically prospered in the peculiar way that they did in Buenos Aires. Um, that that those things are impossible to understand without the backstory, which is the collapse of traditional artists and organization, the underlying economic and social crisis caused by declining real wages, um, and the the re, refashioned, restructured social universe uh, that's occasioned by the African slave trade um, and by the increasingly uh, complex, socially complex um, urban pleb. Yeah, and, and I think, uh, you know, I'll ask you about this 1811 question, uh, because I think maybe this will kind of kind of bring us to a conclusion here. Uh, if you kind of talk about what, what sort of happens after your book and maybe what you weren't able to put in that's really important to, to these later periods that you talk about and, and the desire not to kind of make this into a three-volume set. So yeah, yeah, yeah. if you could sort of talk about what happens afterwards, what you couldn't include, and then maybe transition into sort of what the next project is, because I know it's, it's in some ways connected to these ideas. So um, I, I argue that the last months of 1811 is really the end point for that um, – short flourishing of a of a popular military culture in Buenos Aires. And that's because by 1811, forces from Buenos Aires and some aligned forces from the interior had experienced some military defeats, particularly in Alto Peru or modern Bolivia. And there's a sense in Buenos Aires that the military has to be professionalized. Right, So the, the structure that comes out of the resistance to the two British invasions is one in which, you know, if you read the documents closely, it's just filled with wonderful stuff, which is, you know, first of all, um, all of these militia units, um, even though they were created in response to the emergency of the British invasions, once the invasions were over none of the military units wanted to be disbanded. And one of the reasons they didn't want to be disbanded is they were being paid. And the pay for most of the um, enlisted ranks of these new militias was roughly similar in scale 
um, to artisan pay of Hmm. the period just before the British invasions. And you actually have commanding officers in the acting viceroy, Santiago Liniers, exchanging letters in which they say things like, you know, we can't afford to disband this unit because they'll all turn to crime. You know, so there's this fear that disbanding the popular militias would sort of unleash the social chaos that people had been fearing since the 1795 purported conspiracies. So um, the result is you have this military that's neither here nor there, right? So it's a popular military um Soldiers are wearing their uniforms in the streets. Some of them are pawning their firearms in order to buy drinks in the pulperias. There's just this sense of urban chaos. Um, and so there's this pressure to uh, professionalize. And that military unit that was most important in the era of the British invasions and most important in supporting independence in May 25th, 1810, the Patricios, um, they are given a new colonel who, among other things, um, demands that they cut their pigtails, which was a so- sort of a, so- a source of masculine pride. Pigtails mm-hmm. were common in the colonial period. By 1811, they're less common. They're not seen as modern, right? So there's this antique masculine culture. The pigtails are supposed to be cut, and they rebel. Uh, So you have a military mutiny in downtown Buenos Aires. It's put down fairly quickly. But in the reaction to the failed mutiny, one of the things they do is is the election of officers disappears. Um, All of those units which had this great prestige from their spontaneous defense of the patria in 1806 and 1807 are reorganized. Um, either subsumed in new units or they lose their traditional um, uh, nomenclature that had singled them out. The Patricios were always Regimiento uh, Numero Uno, and they become Numero Tres. So there's this sort of transformation of the of the military. Um, so what I argue is is that one of the attractions of this military that's created by 1806-1807 invasions, is that it replicates in essential ways much of the culture, the, not only the political culture, but the masculine culture of the old guilds. But after 1811, it's something different. It's something different. So that's why, for me, the failed mutiny of the Patricios in 1811 is, is really important. But as this book was coming to conclusion... So one of the last things I stumbled on, um, so my effort to go and recreate the economy of the late colonial period was intentional. The discovery of the conspiracy of 1798 was pure accident. I was going through some of these, you know, large bundles of documents, the legajos of the Buenos Aires archive, um, very late in the game. And all of a sudden I just stumbled on in the Audiencia records, I stumbled on a fat expediente with the, with the, with the title French Conspiracy. Mm. And, you know, 
So, I mean, I'm sure you're just like me. I mean, who can, you've got to open it up. You've got to read, right? Because I'd never heard of it. Um, so I read it. So I realized it was important and really useful to me. So it becomes, in the book we're talking about, it becomes the fulcrum of the book. Right? Things after 1795 are different than things before 1795. And it's this moment at which the struggles within the guild community, within the artisan community, the struggles within this emerging, transforming colonial world become more political. And there's a momentum that takes us to 1810 and the beginnings of independence. But what I feared was, of course, it's such a great story, it would take the book over. Right? So I made a series of decisions um, about what was in and how much was in. So I certainly, hopefully, gave it enough space to breathe in Chapter 5 of the book, but a great deal of the material from the conspiracy itself, and then a lot of the material that, that tied to the key protagonists into the later period, um, I decided would be another book. And that's what I'm working on now. So then the decision was, how do I end the book? Right? So I essentially end it with 1811. But that chapter begins with the execution of Santiago Liniers. Right? So I decided to put Liniers's execution by the first patriotic government in the book, even though I thought about keeping that out of the book. So Liniers is tied to the conspiracy of 1795. The investigating judge... Uh, Martin de Alcega wants to bring Liniers in and interrogate him in its in essence as the the purported ringleader of this conspiracy. That is the thing the judge is looking for is someone large enough to be uh, a potential leader of a rebellion, and all of the people people he arrests are simply small time artisans, shopkeepers, you know, um, individuals of little social consequence. What he needs it, to make his story of a conspiracy to overthrow Spanish rule in the Rio de la Plata in 1795, what he needs for that is a leader large enough to be a plausible uh, character in this story he's concocted. And that's Lanier's. But Liniers is so connected, he basically holds the judge, holds Martin de Alcega at arm's length and escapes. He then becomes the hero of the local resistance to the two British invasions. He's made interim viceroy. He's named Conde de Buenos Aires um, by the Spanish government. But when May 25th, 1810 happens... And you have the creation of the local junta that initiates the independence period in Buenos Aires. Um, Liniers then acts, I think, in what is the completely predictable way for him by trying to organize uh, the, 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 the regional loyalists to defeat the junta in Buenos Aires. 
So the Junta in Buenos Aires, made up by individuals in, in, in significant number, the head of the Junta in Buenos Aires is Cornelio Saavedra, who was the key militia officer under Liniers in the defense of Buenos Aires against the British. He signs the death warrant for Liniers. A military force is sent up to Cordoba. They track him down as Liniers tries to escape up to Bolivia. Um, but the officers that have arrest, arrested him are all people who had served under him in the two uh, uh, struggles with the British, and they won't execute him. And so the junta has to send a second group of military officials, the more ruthless guys, up to the interior, and they order his um, his uh, execution. Um, it's said that the firing squad initially refuses to fire, and when it actually does execute him, he suffers terribly because most of the guys in the firing squad refuse to aim at, at his vital organs. Oh, wow. So Liniers, the death of Liniers is in some ways one of the endpoints of the French conspiracy story. The thing I didn't put into the book and that I'm interested in is Martin de Alcica, this the local alcalde who conducts the the um, inquiry of 1795 into the conspiracy. He's executed by the government, patriotic government in Buenos Aires um, in July of, of 1812. So by 1812, the two figures who come out of the French conspiracy, the individual perceived to be the agent of the French Revolution, Liniers, and the loyalist um, alcalde, the Spanish merchant, Alcica, are both dead, both executed by firing squad, by patriotic governments, uh, in Buenos Aires. So um, right now I'm sort of tracking um, every surviving figure of the uh, French conspiracy of 1795 to the ends of their lives. Oh, that's great. So depending yeah. on whether you have time or not, I've got one wonderful thing I have to tell you about. Oh, please. Okay. So chapter five of the book the French conspiracy chapter begins with the torture of Santiago Antonini, who is an Italian-born clockmaker, um, French-speaking Italian-born clockmaker, who is illegally resident in Buenos Aires in 1795. He's tortured twice, horribly tortured twice by Spanish authorities. He later, he survives the tortures and he remains in Buenos Aires. Um, when Santiago Liniers becomes interim viceroy, he names Antonini commissary general of the um, militia forces of the city of Buenos Aires and then um, makes him his personal lobbyist or emissary, sending him back to Spain. Santiago Antonini is resident in Madrid when the French forces of Napoleon take Madrid. He's later recruited as an agent of the government of um, Joseph Bonaparte and sent back to the Rio de la Plata. On his way back to the Rio de la Plata, um, the Spanish ambassador in uh, the United States is 
spies on the docks of Baltimore spot him and the other French agents. Joseph Bonaparte sends as many as 30 agents to the Spanish colonies trying to nudge the Spanish authorities to accept his government as the, as the legitimate government of Spain. Um, but when the um, Spanish ambassador, Juan Onis, in the United States, uh, writes to the Spanish junta and to other Spanish ambassadors uh, across the hemisphere, he refers to Santiago Antonini, the clockmaker tortured in 1795 as, and I'm quoting directly, the most dangerous man in America. <laughs> what a biography to have to write. That oh, sounds, it's, it's, uh, isn't that great? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's an interesting thing. So in some ways, he's a man created by the repression of the 1795 conspiracy. I mean, his entire ascent um, is the result of this, his connection to Lanier's, which then becomes this significant appointment within the local establishment. All of that happens because of what had occurred in 1795, his arrest and torture. Uh, well, that's a great preview, and it's a, it's a great way to sort of think about where to go from this book as well for the people that are able to to read it. Um, I really enjoyed talking to you. I had a great time reading the book as well, and it was Thanks. such a rich analysis of, of a part of life I don't think we generally tend to see in terms of actual working people's lives and what it was like. So uh, thank you so much for talking with us, and uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate it as well. All right. Take care. Yeah, see you.